Hello, and welcome to Brown Advisory's Investment Roundtable, where we invite some of the leading investors from inside and outside the firm to discuss the issues of the day. I'm Sid All, the Chief Investment Officer of our private client endowments and foundations practice. Today's episode will feature a conversation we had during a live webinar for clients and friends of the firm on March 17th. I was joined by fellow CIOs Erica Padgel and Jacob Hodes, as well as Kiff Hancock, the head of our International Investment Solutions Group, and Ryan Meyerberg, a global fixed income portfolio manager. We discussed the impacts of the war in Ukraine, inflation, and how we're positioning portfolios and seeing opportunities today. Thanks for tuning in. We hope you find the conversation useful. As Jacob says at the end, this team and our firm are always here to serve you, so please don't hesitate to reach out. All right, everyone, we're going to get started. Thank you very much for joining today's Outlook webinar. My name is Jacob Hodes. I'm a partner of Brown Advisory and CIO of Private Investments. Brown Advisory prides itself on taking a collaborative, team-based approach to serving our clients. We believe groups make better decisions than individuals do, and our firm thinks deeply about the importance of being connected with each other and with you. We have a firm-wide, all-hands morning meeting four days a week to discuss any important topical issues, ideas, themes that are happening and affecting our world and that could impact our client portfolios. We strive to learn from each other with the goal of delivering the most effective performance, advice, and service that we can. Today's conversation, we hope, is emblematic of that approach. We've asked several of our firm's leaders from across different teams to share their thoughts on what they're seeing, hearing, and thinking. Our hope is to provide you with some insight and perspective as to how we're trying to navigate the markets and the volatile times that we're in right now. Without further ado, I'd love to introduce my fellow colleagues, Sid All, our CIO of Private Client Endowment and Foundation Business, Kiff Hancock, our CIO of our international business, Ryan Meyerberg, Portfolio Manager of our Global Sustainable Fixed Income Platform, and Erica Padgel, our CIO of Sustainable Investing. Today is St. Patrick's Day, and I'd like to start with a quick anecdote. Two years ago, our firm, like most others, were planning to host various happy hours across our offices to celebrate the day. We thought it'd be fun. But also, at the same time, COVID-19 was coming into our consciousness. At the time, we decided to cancel that happy hour, or actually to delay the happy hour, hoping that we'd be able to do it a week or two later. Little did we know that only two years now, many of us are feeling comfortable to come back out to emerge and attend that type of event. So that is to say it's been quite a couple of years in our world. When we envisioned this webinar even a couple months ago, we hoped that the thoughts that we'd be sharing related to how we were emerging from the pandemic, what we were doing to navigate what we hoped would be an emergence of consumers, of people coming out, spending money, traveling, and those sorts of things. But now we're confronted with many other critical issues, the war and humanitarian crisis in Ukraine, inflation and the response of central banks, which is a very topical issue, and energy security and the prices that um, many people are paying for gas, just to name a few of those issues. So we plan to touch on those and several others today. We'd also love for you to participate. Please use the Zoom Q&A function to share any questions, and we'll do our best to cover whatever you might have on your minds. But with that backdrop, let's jump in. Sid, I'm going to start with you. Could you talk a little bit about the global macro environment really over the last couple of years, but focusing in on the last few months as we've seen Ukraine and other inflationary issues really emerge? Sure, Jacob. Happy to. Uh, thanks, everybody, for joining. Um, you know, this is the third year in a row. We've had a pretty big change to the landscape right after publishing our outlook, which hopefully you've all had a chance to, to flip through. We had COVID, as Jacob was, was just referencing, and then last year was the kind of meme stock craze with GameStop and AMC and now Russia and, and Ukraine. So it certainly keeps us on our toes. Um, First, you know, I think we're all feeling agitated about the war, the humanitarian toll, and, and a wide range of outcomes. Um, you know, sticking to the investment perspective, 
I would just say we came into this year position for higher structural inflation, uh, realizing we had negative real interest rates and a, also a changing environment with central banks tightening uh, monetary policy. Uh, this has meant for us reducing bond exposure, shortening our duration, adding to areas like real estate and infrastructure uh, that can benefit from this rising inflation and, and utilizing more absolute return hedge funds as a replacement for some of that fixed income exposure. Also meant prioritize cash and fixed income around uh, to ride out volatility. Uh, so, you know, the, the big impact here the last few weeks has been to Russian securities. Stocks are down 50%. The currency is off 40%. They've doubled interest rates to 20% and, and their sovereign and corporate bonds are trading in junk territory. I, I'd just like to underscore we have very de minimis exposure to Russia uh, directly in our portfolios. It's less than 10 basis points uh, of exposure. And uh, even on a revenue basis, it's less than 1% of revenues for underlying companies. Our, even our emerging markets allocations are underweight. So this isn't really about direct exposure to Russia. It's about the secondary impacts that Jacob was uh, referencing. So we're focused on inflation. We're focused on supply chain impacts. We're focused on the impacts to the geopolitical world order and, and, and energy. Uh, and these are longer term themes, I think, that we've been focused on and have been on our minds for some time. And I think it might be surprising to some that uh, what's happened is uh, we've actually seen shifting within stocks, but not as much out of stocks. U.S. stocks, including small cap stocks, are actually positive since uh, Russian troops entered Ukraine. And so the, the negative year-to-date returns that we've seen thus far have more to do with central banks raising rates and taking away the proverbial uh, punch bowl than, uh, than what's going on in, in Ukraine. It's, it's no surprise commodity stocks uh, and commodities themselves are up. And it's no surprise to us that emer emerging markets in, in Europe are suffering the most. But in aggregate, global stocks are actually up a little bit and, and the U.S. has been performing well. So I know we're going to talk about a lot of these issues and double click into um, some of the changes we're making. But I just close by saying it's important in times like these to, to remain humble about uh, risks and the path that markets can take. Uh, but we're also trying to really be focused on making decisions based on disconnects between current prices and long-term value. So we're not trying to predict every twist and turn in the markets. Thanks, Sid. Ryan, as head of our global fixed income strategy, you're really kind of frontline across several different markets. Sid talked a little bit about central banks, liquidity. Maybe you could share some thoughts as to what you're seeing. Yeah, I, the first thing I would say is that, you know, this is a, a different type of environment for fixed income than what we've been used to for a long time. And, and that's a function of the fact that the world has an inflation problem. And central banks are, you know, across the globe are, are in sync now, except now it's to tighten rather than to loosen policy. And that's really where we had been since the, the GFC. But look, think about emerging market central banks. They've been really aggressive in the context of, you know, raising rates over the past six months. But now all the major developed central banks and satellite central banks in the developed world are all now moving towards normalizing policy as well. But, you know, we, we note that there are variations in the pace and the amount of tightening to come from central banks, which means to us that there will be opportunities for active managers to add alpha from, you know, geographic and asset allocation decisions in rates in currencies and in risk assets. But, you know, it's undeniable that, you know, predating the, the invasion of Ukraine, you know, we've seen pressure on risk assets as central banks, as Sid said, take away the punch bowl. Um, from our perspective, even with that widening in spreads, you know, valuations in corporate credit in, in the aggregate are still pretty stretched for, for where we are in the cycle. And alongside that, you know, risk-free rates are still incredibly low in the context of where headline inflation sits. So 
from our perspective, you know, it means that that risk-free rates are unlikely to provide the same levels of protection in the global slowdown or recession that, that, that they might have in previous cycles. And it means that investors are going to have to approach navigating this cycle differently than they might have in, in past cycles. Erica, maybe you could take that from a U.S. perspective, you know, as far as navigating what we're seeing. Um, maybe we'll start with you and Kip, then turn over to you on the international side. But Erica, why don't you jump in? Great. Thanks, Jacob. And thank you, everyone, for joining today. So headed into this year, we did expect um, some market volatility. We uh, anticipated a, a more bumpy market than what we've seen, um, particularly last year. And the last few months have been some of the most difficult since the start of the pandemic. This is the first correction that we've experienced in, in two years. We also started the year uh, in January and February with um, a pullback in growth stocks as investors anticipated higher interest rates. Um, you know, fourth quarter earnings season came in better than feared. There were some volatile moves for, for certain companies. Um, as we look forward, input costs, wages are rising. Um, so we think that, you know, in the next couple of quarters and uh, for earnings season, the, the tone might switch from a focus on revenue growth to one that's focused on margin growth. Uh, Sid mentioned this and, and Ryan mentioned this, that things are changing quickly. There's several shocks that are, are happening at once right now. Um, the invasion of Ukraine uh, has led to performance declines across most all U.S. Sec sectors, with the exception of energy. Um, and there's an impact from a shifting paradigm in the global energy market supply and demand and that's leading to a rise in oil, gas, and commodity prices. So when we sit here today, demand is much more vulnerable to these rising commodity and, and oil prices. Sid um, brought up a chart that showed kind of various parts of the markets and, and performance, uh, and we mentioned this in our market outlook, and this still holds true today. Um, we're still seeing a lot of dispersion under the surface for, for a lot of sectors. Large growth and small growth have been particularly hit this year. Um, but in the backdrop, drop, um, we have seen some improvement in the U.S. economy. So pressures have eased a bit in the U.S. from COVID-related disruptions. There's also some small signs of an improvement in labor shortages, particularly in leisure and hospitality. Um, and you know, if we if we take at take a look at U.S. within our portfolios for clients. Right now, we're recommending a good balance between both value and growth within U.S. equities, and we are being patient in making any shifts in portfolios just given the day-to-day -day market volatility. Kif, is that consistent on your side when it comes to international? Yeah, I, I definitely think it is. Um, you know, maybe, you know, Ryan touched on this, but I think from the, the view from London, or I should say Europe, um, we often talk about how we're, we're macro-aware but not macro-driven, but um, one of the the interesting things that sort of come out of the recent situation in Ukraine, I think most people anticipated a hefty response from the United States with respect to sanctions. But the unification of Europe in this entire situation, specifically Germany and a few other countries, I think has been um, inspiring. It's caught, I think, certain um, people a little bit by surprise. And and really, if you think about it, you know, the European response is, is most likely triggered, a, you know, a structural shift in the energy landscape, specifically here in Europe. And and of course, this disruption goes beyond energy, you know, into key commodities that are vital to the production of everything from bread to base chemicals. And, you know, one of the many lessons that COVID taught us is that global supply chains, um, they really just take a long time to adapt. So in the near term, we think the main drag on growth here in Europe will likely come from higher prices. 
But, um, you know, we talk about, you know, Bill Gates, I think, is the one who said at one point that, you know, we tend to overestimate the, uh, the impact of change that will occur in the next two years with the big event and underestimate the change that will occur over the next 10. And with that in mind, I think over the longer term, you know, we're, we're questioning whether, you know, commodity intensive production capacity, um, which Europe is full of, gradually shifts out of Europe into closer proximity to those key industrial outputs, maybe in North America. Um, the automotive industry comes to mind. I mean, it's been booming in Central and Eastern Europe for a number of years now. So, um, you know, it's fluid and it'll take time, but it's something we're, uh, we're quite mindful of. Thanks, Kef. Sid mentioned at the start that as far as direct exposure to Ukraine or to Russia, it might be fairly limited across our portfolios. But I certainly think from a global perspective, um, it's certainly the topic of the day. So maybe we can focus a little bit more on the war itself and maybe not just the direct impacts, but derivative impacts as well. Ryan, I might kick it back to you just to talk a little bit about liquidity, about bond markets in particular. We actually do have a question, too, that mentioned about spread widening more in quite a while and how we think about that, too. So maybe you could touch on those topics um, to start. Sure. Um, look, I, I think it's undeniable that that the war is acting as a catalyst to put more upward pressure on energy, food, other commodities, as mentioned. And that's going to create an even more challenging inflationary backdrop than what we had to start the year. Um, as Kif mentioned and others, it's also likely to cause, you know, meaningful slowdown in, in European economic growth, which, you know, had been growing pretty strongly out of the COVID crisis and expected, had been expected to grow well above potential this year. But, you know, with most material negative market shocks, we watch the plumbing of the market really closely. You know, if you imagine the global economy to be like an engine, you know, it's short-term funding markets that act like the grease or the lubricant that keeps things running smoothly. And past crises, I think, you know, about the Lehman crisis, for example, have been, have been exacerbated by a lack of liquidity in short-term funding markets. So you know, we're keeping a very close eye on certain indicators like, you know, fraud OIS, which is, you know, sort of how banks lend to each other, um, currency swap markets. And we did see at the, at the onset of the Russian invasion that these indicators spiked pretty sharply, but they have all moderated since then. And so it suggests to us that, you know, there isn't systemic risk that's bubbling away in the background, but it's something that we need to, to watch very closely. And, you know, to the question about credit spreads, you know, the wars put risky assets under pressure, um, especially, you know, developed market credit spreads in Europe, merger market bonds, you know, moving lower as the market's starting to price in the risk of a Russian default, which is imminent, it seems, and also the, the, the risk of a, of a global slowdown or worst case scenario, potentially a stagflationary environment. So, you know, are, should credit spreads be widening here? Um, we would say that, you know, frankly, um, after all these years of extraordinary monetary policy and fiscal policy on, on a quality adjusted basis, credit spreads have been at all time tights. Um, and so they probably should be widening as you expect the global economy to slow down. And typically when the Fed starts raising rates and other central banks hike, uh, risk assets do well. Um, I think it's unlikely this time around because you can see the linkages between the growth of central bank balance sheets and risk assets. And it's really, really tight, that correlation. So it seems very sensible to us to expect that as the punch bowl goes away, that you should see credit spreads widening. Default rates are still very, very low. Um, and that's a very good thing. Um, so we're not expecting to see you know, really big pickup and spread widening. But, you know, th this is a natural move for us and, and something that we expected coming into the year. Thanks, Ryan. On the risk asset front, maybe, Kiff, that's a good segue to you. Talk a little bit about European equities and maybe even emerging market equities, too, and kind of what the effects and impacts have been this year. Sure. Um, you know, I, I think maybe going back and building on the idea that, you know, we tend to overestimate the impact in the short term, you know, we're beginning to see a little bit of evidence that indiscriminate selling in European equities has opened up some real compelling opportunities, especially in the tech and, uh, and healthcare space. Um, a lot of that selling may come from, you know, North American colleagues um, just wanting to step back and, 
and wait till things settle a little, a little bit more. But you know, we partner with um, a few firms here who specialize in small and mid-cap European equities, and they do so in industries like healthcare and tech that really have exposure to the U.S. market in sort of developed Europe. Um, and you know, these are high-quality companies, high returns on invested capital that, right now, in their opinion, are trading at valuations they haven't seen for five, seven years. So, you know, we're quite constructive on, on the landscape here. Um, you mentioned emerging markets. You know that, that that's a real tricky one. Um, I know Sid had the chance to speak to one of our, our flagship managers in Asia earlier today, and you know they're getting, I think, very very constructive, especially in ASEAN around China. I think sometimes that gets lost in the in the Asia story, perhaps to a, to a certain degree. But it sounds like we're hearing similar stories that you know select high quality companies are looking quite attractive for the uh, the long term investor right now. Sid, just because Kif mentioned you, I'll turn it over to you and see you know, if you have any thoughts on the emerging market front, but also talk a little bit about what we're seeing. Your chart mentioned commodities have run a little bit. Uh, maybe you could talk about that aspect too. Yeah. Um, you know, I think Brian hit on some of these points, but everybody thinks about the oil and gas impact here, and there's going to be a long-term transition as the U.S. and Europe perhaps turn their back on, on Russian oil and gas, and that could lead to... Um, uh, higher prices, but we're, we've also disrupted the largest global exporter of, of nickel and uh, neon, semiconductor grade neon. And, uh, you know, these will have impacts on supply chains for semiconductors and electric vehicles. Uh, so we're not just going to see, you know, gasoline and utility bill uh, impact here. Uh, uh, Ryan mentioned agricultural commodities, uh, Russia and Ukraine are big exporters of wheat and corn, uh, and also Russia makes something uh, on the order of 20% of exports of potash and they're big uh, exporters of ammonia and urea. So the, the fertilizer market impacts are, are gonna be felt. And uh, you know, commodity markets were already tight before this. Um, so, I mean, there's just a, a couple of things that we think about. Um, you know, First of all, this could put some margin pressure uh, on companies, but uh, it really impacts, especially food and energy, um, the lowest uh, uh, earning uh, uh, across the world. So, um, you know, the kind of bottom 20 percent in the U.S. will spend 40, 50 percent of their disposable income on food and energy. And in emerging markets, um, it's uh, on average about 40 or 50 percent. So, you know, there are positives and negatives here uh, with regard to emerging markets. There's definitely a, a short term pressure on on the consumer. Uh, but there's obviously been a pretty big uh, decline in, in prices. And so, you know, what we're trying to do is be very targeted with the exposure that we have in, in emerging markets. It's much more focused on, on Asia uh, and it's a little bit more focused um, towards some of the really high quality long term uh, growth companies uh, that, that we want exposure to in Asia that uh, obviously will be less impacted uh, given their higher margin structure and pricing power. Um, so, you know, there, there are, um, you know, many things to be thinking about. Uh, I'd say the last thing is with regard to kind of stock by stock in our portfolios, we're thinking about, you know, companies that can get squeezed by discretionary um, uh, spending coming down in certain areas, and then companies that can benefit as uh, consumers kind of trade down to more value uh, brands. Thanks, Ed. Eric, I would like to double click on energy. You mentioned that in your opening as well. Um, you obviously, as CIO of Sustainable Investing here, think a lot about energy transition, but as well as kind of the current pricing situation. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about that and what you're thinking. 
Yeah, so um, the volatility that we've seen in energy prices uh, is is not for the faint of heart. So remember that back in 2020, um, WTI crude actually went negative. Um, over the past couple of weeks, uh, crude approached $130, and now today it's trading anywhere between $100 and $102. So um, it's been quite a roller coaster ride. And how companies as well as consumers navigate that, um, it's it's not easy. Uh, the crisis in Ukraine has resulted in several governments revisiting their energy reliance uh, and sources. And so this could result in shifting energy policies and priorities as many countries focus much more on the security of supply. Uh, the European Commission came out uh, about a week ago and announced a plan to reduce reliance on Russian gas by two thirds by the end of this year. And they also proposed a plan to make Europe independent of fossil fuels before 2030. Um, It's important to note that a plan does need to comply with the EU climate law, which was approved uh, in 2021. So going forward, you know, there's probably going to be some short term options um, that solve for this lower reliance on exports from Russia. Um, There's been a lot talked about LNG, liquid natural gas as as being one of them. Um, There's probably going to be a scramble to replace resources uh, in the you know short to intermediate term, um, but you know I think if if anything right now this cl- conflict does underscore uh, the need to escalate to transition to renewable energy, but it's complicated. Um, Sid just mentioned it's going to take time. This is a multi-year process. Um, it's you know in many ways this is being referred to right now um, as a as a watershed moment in the in the en- energy industry. You will notice that a lot of clean energy companies have exhibited very strong performance over the past couple of weeks, um, and that's coming off of a year of um, pretty detracted performance. So clearly investors are are grabbing attention again towards um, renewables. One subtext that keeps coming up, obviously, then is inflation itself, um, the pricing volatility. And this is something that well before um, you know, this this year rolled around, the events in Ukraine rolled around, we were very focused on it. I think we had our doubts as to whether or not it truly was transitory, like some folks thought. Maybe we can dive in on the inflationary side a little bit. Um, obviously, it's something that's very present. We've heard some data points on it. Kif, maybe you could talk um, first with you, provide any perspective you can, but, but specifically how we're thinking about navigating the inflationary environment on the investment side. Sure. It's, um, it's, it's probably... Um the most discussed topic, uh, you know, um, with clients, not only in the past, I would say, three to four months, but maybe over the past 12, 12 to 18 is, as we've begun to emerge from COVID. And, you know, as, as we think about sort of positioning portfolios to um, not just withstand inflation, but sort of, you know, thrive, if you will, as the best one can in, in an inflationary environment, we've had a strong bias towards economic infrastructure assets and those with explicit inflation protection. And, and we've had that in place for a few years now. And, one of the reasons um, that we like it is, you know, the regulated assets in Europe um, um, are they operate under a framework um, for inflation, whereby um, the assets are explicitly linked to um, the annual changes in the inflation rate. So it comes right through to the revenue line, which is is, is quite quite a strong hedge. Um, but you know, you know, I think we often talk about sort of real assets. The gold is inflation hedges. We also like businesses like Visa and Mastercard right now. I mean. We think they're a great inflation hedge because as higher prices translate into higher revenues, yet the uh, the cost structures for these businesses are largely fixed. So it's it, they have a lot of operating leverage, which is quite constructive. But turning back to Europe quite quickly, I mean, one of the questions we get is, you know, with higher inflation, are, are rates going to uh, to follow quite quickly, and will and will that, 
you know, be a bit of a gravitational pull on the uh, the multiples for some of these um, infrastructure assets. So I don't really have an opinion there. Maybe it's a good way to throw it over to Ryan to think about what he sees about European rates and inflation. Yeah, well, I think, you know, um, certainly in the context of, of, of central banks and inflation, um, you know, we had the Fed yesterday and, and everyone sort of front and center and it was a hawkish meeting. Um, and I think it's very indicative of where every central bank finds themselves right now. I think, you know, the, the FMC has finally acknowledged that there's an inflation problem at hand and they expect to hike aggressively through the course of this year, 150 basis points, and then to continue to hike through next year um, in order to get to a terminal rate to start to slow down the economy. Um, but, you know, there's the challenges of the fact that, you know, they expect core PC, their preferred measure, to now be north of 4%. Um, as opposed to it was sub three in, in December, and growth is slowing down. Um, so I think from from our perspective, you know, where the Fed finds itself is where every major central bank finds itself. Um, you know, and I think we need to see rates moving higher to start to choke off inflation. Um, but the reality, I think, for Europe especially, is that there are these secondary spillover effects from the war in Ukraine that is causing a lot of consternation with the Bank of England, the ECB, in terms of you know starting to move into recessionary territory. So, you know, we do think banks will, will hike rates um, consistently through the course of this year. We think balance sheet roll-off will be really important as well as a tool to help to, to slow down inflation. Um, but from our perspective, the Fed's really the only central bank that can materially tighten policy given the strength of the U.S. economy. I think Chair Powell yesterday was at pains to reiterate that, you know, the FOMC believes that the underlying health of the economy is really strong and they see really low risk of recession in 2022. And that's a view that, that we share. But you know, if you look at nominal rates in the U.S. at 2% um, and where the Fed funds is, you know, think about Mexico, for example, in emerging markets. You know, Mexico has a lower inflation rate than the Fed, than the U.S. does. Um, but rates are 650 basis points higher. Um, so it's not to say, you know, that was the risk premium that, that should exist in a country like Mexico. But from our perspective, it means that rates need to be materially higher, not just in the U.S., but in Europe, whether it's, you know, on the continent or in the U.K. And that's, that's going to be the, the trajectory through the course of this year next. Ryan, you're popular in our Q&A function today. I'm going to do a quick follow-up with you. But one of our questions said that um, they heard an interview where um, the comment was made that the Fed can't raise rates high enough to combat inflation and what the risks may be if the Fed doesn't act quickly enough or what other tools may be available in order to combat that rising rate. So maybe you could dovetail on that and then said, I might turn it over to you to share your thoughts as well. Yeah, I think we would say that the Fed, and I think many would agree, that the Fed has been woefully behind the curve in the context of, of trying to get in front of inflation. Um, and, and clearly, they have acknowledged it now. Um, they are going to start raising rates aggressively. But the risk is, and I think this is where most central banks can find themselves, is um, if you are too slow in hiking rates, um, you run the risk of, of having de-anchored inflation expectations. And when inflation expectations become embedded materially higher, it's very hard to, to get them to come down again. You know, the Japanese have had the opposite uh, situation for decades. You know, when deflation, disinflation became entrenched, there's basically been nothing they can do to get inflation expectations to move higher. So the Fed is going to need to hike rates aggressively. And in fact, they, they have said, you know, that they, they, in their projections with this inflation rate, you know, now at 4% for 2022, they're still concerned that there are upside risks to that inflation. So, you know, they have left all the, the tools on the table. You know, they have basically forecast and kind of foreshadowed these 25 basis point hikes over the next seven meetings. But there's this optionality to hike faster if necessary, 50 basis point hikes if they need to. But I also think they have other tools, and that tool is, is definitely the balance sheet. You know, if you would say that inflation is at a, is at a four-decade high and the Fed would still be buying securities, um, you know, we'd all think you know, you'd be crazy. 
you know, so that's that's definitely something they need to do and that they will do in May. They're going to start to roll off the balance sheet. So that's another tool that they have. But they also believe that inflation is being caused by some outside factors. You know, labor market's really tight. We see wage pressure, but they think more people come to the labor market. Um, they think that, you know, some of the supply chain issues will, will work themselves out. So, you know, we will see if that happens, but the Fed's going to need to be aggressive. And, you know, it remains to be seen if, you know, they can take a measured approach or it needs to be a Volcker approach, you know, and that's really going to be where rates are going, you know, hundreds and hundreds of basis points higher. And if they need to do that, Powell has said they will do that. Um, and that will be a very challenging backdrop for them. Sid, what about you? You know, it's really interesting because, you know, at the end of the year, when we were looking at the inflation um, situation, we definitely saw the potential um, for inflation staying much higher, you know, say three, four percent for an extended period of time. And, and we've often talked about how it's really when inflation stays above five percent uh, for a material period of time, that that's when both stocks and bonds can suffer. And, and you really need to have much larger allocations to real estate, commodity, infrastructure, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, what this has served to be is a, a bit of a supply shock, a little bit like what we had in the 1970s that has just increased that probability. It doesn't mean it's a certainty by any stretch of the imagination, but it's one of the reasons that we've opened up our uh, minds to even larger allocations to uh, real estate infrastructure and, and even potentially uh, commodities in, in, in portfolios because that, that probability has increased. But there, there are no certainties. There are only kind of probabilities in investing. Uh, I think Ryan's point is really interesting about the behavioral side of this. The longer it lasts also, the increasing probability that it gets set into the psyche. Um, but we also have to remember, and we wrote about this last year and the year before, that there are still some really long-term structurally deflationary forces at, at, at play here. Demographics, uh, aging economies, uh, not just in the US and Europe, but also in China, slowing population growth, high debt levels, um, uh, and, and just a very different uh, economy than we had, say, in the US in the 1970s, when we had a much more highly unionized labor force, um, and when you know a bigger portion of what we were spending our money on were goods rather than services. Uh, and then we do have some cyclical elements that should get a little bit better, right? When we were locked up during COVID, we were spending all of our money on goods and nothing on services. There will be a transition as the economy reopens to spending more money on services, and that can balance out some of the really intense inflationary pressure we felt on, on the goods side. So, you know, I, I think the bottom line is the probability has increased and and that's, you know, what, what we will react to. But, um, you know, by no means is it a, a certainty that we're going to be looking at, you know, five, six, seven percent uh, inflation or, or interest rates. And the last point I make is just that, um, you know, we're still in a, in a place from an asset allocation perspective where, uh, real interest rates, so interest rates minus inflation, are really negative. To Ryan's point, you know, the, the maybe positive in Mexico and positive in Brazil. In the U.S., they aren't, and that you know forces us as asset allocators to have less in fixed income and more in some of these yielding real assets. I'm sure we'll talk more about real estate as an example of that. That's one area we've leaned in a lot the last few years. So, just a quick follow up in terms of the variables that we look at. You know, when we think about wages and what they're doing. Um, where, where do we see wages going? Are they inflating? Are they stagnating? And how does that play into the economy? They are definitely inflating. And we have a tight job market. And in some parts of it have been a little confusing because we've had a lot of people looking for work and a lot of people looking for employees. And, and they haven't always been meeting in the middle. It's been kind of a, a bit of a mismatch. 
So there is wage pressure, and and that's something that's very different from the last 20 years when we've seen you know kind of a stagnating wage environment. That's one of the reasons that we were convinced you know before this that we could have structurally higher um, rates of uh, of inflation. So um, you know to Erica's point, I think that there are some improvements uh, in that. You know as people are kind of being forced to come back into the labor force um, uh, as the pandemic. Uh, you know, seems to be coming to an end. Uh, but that's one of the things we've got our eyes on. Well, so maybe Erica, over to you, can talk a little bit more, just going back to the inflationary environment that we're in. How do we help clients navigate these things? How do we think about growth versus value as far as portfolio construction? Um, how are we advising our clients to really manage the situation? Yeah, thanks, Jacob. Um, I'll just add one area on the on the wages. Um, and I thought it was a good analogy that I've, uh, I've seen recently. Um, so we all hear about wages going up and how that impacts um, corporations um, and margins and, and, you know, potentially just another um, input cost um, that corporations have to deal with. But on the earning side, you know, if you include inflation, um, you know, it, it, you might even say in some areas that earners have actually gotten a pay cut after inflation with with the with the wage increases. So it's something that that's very much on our mind. Um, going back to to value and growth, uh, you know, the past year and a half has has been a really um, you know interesting market. We've essentially seen this tug of war between hyper growth stocks on one side or reopening stocks on the other side. It's really been this duel between risk on and risk off sentiment. Um, um, you know, this year growth companies have been hit the hardest. We've seen multiples really, um, you know, move lower, even though they're still elevated for for many versus historical no, norms. Um, and then on the the flip side, you, you have kind of value stocks. Um, these tend to be much more cyclically or economically sensitive. Um, they appear cheaper than than growth stocks, um, but there's still a lot of volatility in the market. Uh, so what we're recommending right now is an equal balance between both growth and value within within your portfolio. Um, value companies tend to have a little bit less sensitivity to interest rates. Um, however, um, we still do like a lot of high quality growth companies. Um, so a, a balance of, of two in this market environment, one, an environment where um, there's potentially a, a very broad range of outcomes. I want to talk a little bit about where we see opportunity, but just remind folks that please feel free to enter questions in the Q&A chat function. We, we really appreciate any and all questions that you have. Um, I do want to lean forward in terms of how we're thinking more about navigating it. Erica, maybe we'll stick with you just as far as we think about trying to see what we can do for our clients in this environment. We do have a specific question on electric vehicles, um, and particularly in the EU, um, what's the EV adoption rate? Where do we see that going? Um, Kif, you might want to touch on that too, but Erica, maybe you could start with you and then we'll we'll kind of keep going from there. Yeah, sure. So maybe I'll, I'll hit electric vehicles first. Um, you know, we uh, in our market outlook, we talked a lot about electric vehicles. I, I think, um, you know, consumers are are very interested in this from an investment standpoint. But if you look at some of the companies that are out there today, uh, there's a lot of orders, not a lot of units being delivered. Um, there's a lot of assumptions being made into to current valuations for, for many companies that might not yet have revenue or profitable uh, or are profitable. But, um, you know, I think this is probably, uh, and Kif mentioned this earlier, um, a, an industry to, to watch. So we've, we've absolutely seen an uptick within the EU for, um, for electric vehicles. 
vehicles. I, I, I saw something that, you know, last year registration, so new registrations for vehicles, um, you know, uh, increased uh, three to four percent. Um, and so uh, uh, EV is now roughly um, kind of low, low teens as far as 12 percent of new registrations within the EU. Um, EV is, is still um, a smaller portion in the U.S., uh, and we'd expect that to grow. Uh, the last you know, estimates that I saw is kind of mid to high single digits as, as a portion of, of total cars with, within the U.S., um, but you know there, there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of opportunities. Uh, there'll probably be execution risk. You now have most of the auto manufacturers, um, you know, exploring this in in some some shape or fashion. As far as switching to opportunities, uh, just to take a little bit of a quick step back, um, when we build portfolios for our clients, we utilize a three-bucket approach. Um, you know, first we have an operating bucket um, that you know squarely focuses on on what Ryan has has talked about: so liquidity and stability, cash and short and fixed short-term fixed income. We have a, a core bucket which is marketable securities that pursue long-term goals. And then our um, our opportunistic bucket that can contain idiosyncratic investments, those that might have a window in time. So positioning for portfolios in this current environment, Sid mentioned we've leaned more into short duration on the on the fixed income side. Uh, our largest equity allocation right now is within the U.S. I mentioned a couple minutes ago that we're we're very balanced between growth and value, focusing on high quality companies that exhibit strong pricing power and cash flow generation. But we also see a lot of opportunities in real assets right now. So on both the public and the private market side. So looking for opportunities that can play defense. So in the event that we do have a stagflationary environment, but also offense. Um, so we can think a little bit more in strategic areas. We've talked a lot about energy transition, but you know, also security. Um, and you know, the, the other component on the energy transition side, uh, you know, we think that this is a really big opportunity for investors and for innovation in, in the years to come. Sid, maybe we can kind of go over to you to talk a little bit about where, where you see opportunity. Um, you know, in particular, one of our questions in the chat function is for a balanced portfolio, what can actually replace bonds? So maybe you could talk start there with bond replacements. And Ryan, I had been saying that you were getting a lot of love, so you know, someone here is uh, is not smitten with the bond. Um, you can never replace bonds, um, Ryan. Don't worry about that. Um, Look, it's it's hard to replace bonds in terms of you know what, one of the things that the bond allocation has that most of the other alternatives don't have is liquidity, um, and so it's really hard to do this without taking some illiquidity risk, but uh, or taking other kind of equity like risk. But you know some of how we've tried to replace the yield um, and defensiveness is take some of our equity allocation and fixed income allocation and put it in you know publicly traded uh, listed infrastructure assets like what Kif uh, discussed. Um, you know, some of that um, in certain client portfolios, uh, it could be a fit to be in, you know, commodities directly or, or um, uh, MLPs or other areas, uh, depending on people's um, preferences. But, you know, real estate, I think, is probably the thing we've we've leaned into most over the last few years. And, you know, what we like are areas like multifamily and, and industrial real estate that can generate you know, a pretty attractive yield, but it's a yield that's not fixed uh, like it is in the fixed income market. 
It's a yield that will increase, especially in multifamily, has been increasing a lot um, as uh, wages rise and inflation rises, rents are rising as well. So kind of you know 20% plus across the board over the last 12 months, you know, rent increases in a lot of our multifamily portfolios. And so it is, you know, potentially a four or five, six percent yield that will grow over time and could see price appreciation. So uh, you know, they're also the fundamentals of the US real estate market are, are still really strong. We've underbuilt ever since the financial crisis. There is a big gap uh, in terms of the homes needed versus um, uh, what what is out there uh, in the market, and so that supply demand dynamic is very supportive. Uh, we think of of, of real estate. Um, the last thing I'd mention is uh, you know absolute return uh, hedge funds. It's very hard to find them, um, but you know there are a few that we have uh, and use actively on our platform. Uh, it is less liquid. It, you are bringing different types of risks on, but. Um, that's another way to try to replicate that kind of uncorrelated exposure in a portfolio that's kind of a, you know, a, a, a modest return, not equity-like, but uh, diversifying. Thanks, Sid. Kev, maybe I could ask you, um, actually, one of the questions, maybe a good segue to you, is that is there an increased opportunity in Europe now, or should we be pulling back altogether? I think in select sectors, there's an increased opportunity. You know, um, you know Europe is known, you know, a little bit as sort of a, Cyclical industrial base, you know, a lot of the large cap companies tend to be very energy intensive, um, but we don't necessarily associate uh, with what we would consider to be, you know, cutting edge healthcare technology in Europe. And that's predominantly because a lot of those businesses are small and mid cap companies, where in the US, they're large and mega cap companies. So when we think of software in Europe, it may be a, a two to five billion dollar market cap company, where in the US, something like Microsoft is worth well over a trillion. Same thing in, in search and in other areas or semiconductors, for an example. So in those specific areas, we're really, really constructive on Europe. Um, and next to that, I mean, it, it sounds a bit, um, it's not necessarily the most exciting thing, but Sid just alluded to it. And earlier on, you alluded to um, the fact that we have that morning, our morning meeting four days a week. And I guess for the audience, uh, J.J. Balin, who heads up our, our real estate here at Brown, was talking about you know, high-density multifamily in the South and Southwest where you just have some great fundamentals, you know, backing that up. So for a European investor or UK investor where rates have been, you know, very low for a long period of time to have, you know, something that can deliver, you know, an eight to 10 percent return on sort of core high quality class A properties with a, a nice coupon and steady, you know, appreciation that can keep up with inflation in the U.S. dollar is is a pretty compelling argument. So I think having that that U.S. access through you know, all of our colleagues has been a, a real differentiator recently. Ryan, any thoughts? Yeah, like I think these are markets, especially from the fixed income side, that require you to stay nimble. Um, you know, active management's key. And, you know, we're really focused, as, you know, Sid and Erica mentioned, on the role that we are meant to play as fixed income managers. You know, it's protecting on the downside and delivering negatively correlated returns to equities. But, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this inflationary backdrop makes that historical defensive playbook you know, slightly less applicable as risk-free duration that we would tend to, to use, like U.S. Treasuries, U.K. Gilts, German Bunds, haven't performed as they typically have. So from our perspective, it's really important to find ways to hedge downside risk in fixed income portfolios, but also where do we play offense? You know, for us, it's you know, shorting the euro and sterling versus being long commodity currencies and the dollar, for example, being long inflation-linked securities in the U.S., in Japan, uh, and in the U.K., and also, you know, where there are opportunities is, you know, we don't believe that global recession is likely to happen in 2022. So as I mentioned, spread levels in corporate credit are getting wider. Um, outright yield levels in emerging markets are starting to look interesting. You know, we 
are looking for, just like on the equity side, you know, we're looking for strong cash flow generated business models that have pricing power, you know, flexible insulated cost structures, recurring non-discretionary revenue that are trading at levels where we feel we're getting paid significantly to own the risk. And actually we're seeing those opportunities pop up. And so we are definitely leaning into those as, as they arise. And we're getting to levels in investment grade credit where, you know, historically, you know, on an aggregate, um, you get paid to hold them over the cycle. Um, you're going to make money if, if you're buying them at, you know, 175 to 200 basis points uh, in terms of spread. And also just on the emerging market side, I think this is really interesting. You know, emerging market countries have improved their current account balances and they've built up really large currency reserves over the past number of years, which make them a lot more resilient to economic slowdowns than they would have been in the past. Uh, and so from our perspective, you know, where outright yields are, you know, we think the back half of the year will be really interesting for in certain countries um, to be increasing your allocation to EM uh, more broadly. Ryan, I'd love to just follow up with some questions that are coming in through the chat. Um, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you've talked about central bank, but maybe Fed bond buying and kind of the monetary easement, quantitative easement um, policies that have also kind of been part of this and how shifting sense of that could, um, could change that. Could just talk a little bit about how um, the bond purchases made by the Fed have maybe kind of played into inflation and how we think that that could be filtering through in a more hawkish Fed going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's undeniable that, then, as I mentioned, that, you know, when you look at almost any risk asset um, overlaid to the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet um, in terms of buying mortgage securities, uh, treasuries after the COVID you know, crisis hit, buying corporate bonds uh, has had an impact in terms of, um, of liquidity and it certainly has, has caused risk assets, you know, across the board to, um, to appreciate. Um, and so again, you know, the feds, one of their policy tools, um, is, is to shrink that balance sheet. We expect that to happen. We expect it to, you know, to over time, um, act as a dampening impact or have a dampening effect on, on inflation. So, um, you know, you pump more liquidity into the system and it's more dollars chasing finite assets. And so you know, clearly they've had a, a huge impact along with every other developed central bank. Bank of Japan has been buying assets for years, the ECB as well. I and mean, the size of the balance sheet as a percentage of GDP is, is huge. And so, you know, all those central banks are going to start winding down bond purchases. Bank of Japan, probably the last one to, to move. And so we expect that to have a dampening effect on inflation, but certainly to have uh, a potential negative impact on, on risk assets as well. Thanks, guys. One other question, one other area, frankly, we haven't talked about yet, and we only have a few minutes left, really, so maybe kind of go quickly through this, although it's very important. Um, it's the, the shadow of China looms large, obviously, on the global economy, and there's several different things coming out of China right now. There's the fact that 50 million people are in a lockdown. What could happen there from a supply chain perspective? Um, there's the tech stock beating that China's had itself, and some of actually the guidance that China provided just yesterday in terms of what the country may be willing to do in order to support its industries. But would love to have a quick conversation about how investable China is today. Sid, maybe we could start with you. Sure, I, I could take a stab at that. Um, and we do address it in our outlook piece. Um, we, we do still think China is investable. Um, you know, if we look out 10, 15 years, it is quite you know, possible that China will be the largest economy in the world. It has very deep and li liquid uh, capital markets. So there are a lot of investable companies there. Um, and I think we would argue some of the regulations uh, that have come out in the last few years, while they've come out, um, you know, very quickly and very autocratically, um, the substance of them is not something that we would necessarily disagree with, but it creates uh, a lot of uncertainty 
Uh, and it requires, if you're going to invest in China, a much higher expected rate of return. Um, I think where we've chosen to focus more of our capital in China is on the domestic markets. I mean, I do think increasingly China is going to um, force companies not to list abroad and to list domestically. And so we would want to be with local experts that can invest domestically in those markets. Um, and I, I think, you know, Erica may touch on this as well, but there are some pretty critical components of uh, EV supply chain and infrastructure and renewable uh, and solar panel uh, uh, su uh, supply chain and infrastructure that are located in China and thematically are areas that we are positive on. And, and we are getting some of that exposure from China. Um, just lastly, the Chinese tech stocks, I don't think anyone would argue that they are very, very cheap relative to uh, the cash flows that they are generating, but it is a very uncertain environment. So we do own some of the very high quality, um, the most high quality businesses that are now trading, you know, as if they are cyclical value businesses when they still have great long-term runways for, for growth. Um, but we're conscious that, you know, things can overcorrect, overcorrect even more materially uh, from here. Erica? Yeah, specifically um, on the point that Sid mentioned related to um, ESG. So, um, you know, uh, China's move to common prosperity. So that's aligning corporate growth um, with social responsibility. Uh, it could, over time, lead companies to adopt greater ESG transparency and, and business practices. Um, so think about companies implementing employee benefits, environmental and social impact programs that could reduce risk over time. But it's important to note that there's still a lot of work to be done here. Policies um, in, in you know, many industries are, are just being constructed. Um, you know, companies are, are trying to figure out how to navigate this current regulatory environment. Uh, if, if we look at the companies that... Um, have audited ESG reporting. That number is still very, very small, um, and you know we, we've seen some improvement, but again, it's 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 pretty tiny. Um, on on the point that Sid made, uh, China has very ambitious goals for reducing carbon emissions and becoming carbon neutral by 2060. Uh, China right now holds the status. Uh, as one of the top global emitters, um, so just under 30 percent, uh, according to um, the IEA, uh, and you know two thirds of that is is coming from coal. So the ability to transition from coal to renewable energy is going to play a big role in in meeting these goals. But it's also important to note that the ability of China to follow through on these goals will be of great benefit globally um, in cutting um, global carbon emissions. Kith, maybe I could just ask one last quick question for you, and then I, re I really do want to end on a quick round the horn on where we see opportunities or main takeaways that um, the audience today can can have. But Kif, to you, on your thoughts on supply chains, commodity pricing, um, you've talked a little bit internally about how there's a lockdown in China, what impact and influence that may have. And as we see that COVID is a persistent factor, that it is not necessarily going away, that and other of the geopolitical situations around the world uh, could, in fact, at intermittent times, affect supply chains. Just any thoughts on how we're navigating that or how you think about that? I think the, the, the problem will ultimately be solved. It just takes time. Um, you know, we all listen to a lot of podcasts and a statistic thrown out on one Sid and I shared recently was that, you know, Amazon, for example, has spent more in CapEx, I think, over the past two years, or they will do over the next two or three years than the 
the previous 17 years combined. Um, the capital expenditure of Taiwan Semiconductor, which is really, a, some, in some ways, at the heart of this sort of China-U.S. relations, because we know how reliant we are on that specific company with respect to so many things in the global economy that are linked to semiconductors. Um, and I think they're spending something like $44 billion this year on CapEx. So anytime with sort of goods, there's, there's demand. You know, the marketplace seems to be quite efficient at meeting that demand over time. Um, so we don't. I don't think we have a lot of worries there. It's just about I think patience and, and observation. Um, Ryan alluded to it earlier, and I, I think Sid did as well on on the wage pressure um, with respect to inflation. Because there's two sides of inflation. Obviously, there's the good side, and then there's just the wage pressure side. I, you know, I, I think that one's a little bit more up in the air, and that's the one we're kind of keeping a, a very very close eye on. Yeah, Kiff, maybe I'll just stick with you. Kind of the last question. You know, as far as you just mentioned, kind of being patient, taking that long term perspective. Uh, I'd love to hear from each of you any kind of final thoughts or final takeaways for the audience today, uh, where you see opportunity, where, how we're trying to navigate, really kind of final word for each of you. Kif, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I'll just go back to China. I mean, we, we remain quite constructive on China over the long term. I mean, the Chinese are, are very well known for taking a very long-term view. Sometimes, you know, we get stuck on in the West thinking about quarters and years, and they're thinking about, you know, decades, if not centuries. And um so, you know, we have a manager who um, is, is, is located in China. They, they remain quite constructive. Um, however, I will say that um, they apply a very constructive, if not progressive, ESG lens to all their investing in China. And that's something that really helps us navigate those waters, because one of the most common questions that we receive these days is, is China investable from clients here? And we think it is. But it's, it takes, a, it takes a, I think, a thoughtful approach. Thanks, Kif. Ryan, how about you? Yeah, I mean, just quickly, I'd say, you know, um, we are heading into the new market paradigm. Uh, inflation at multi-decade highs, central banks are tightening policy. But, you know, the reality is that this is a great market for active management. You know, there are a lot of opportunities that are rising across geographies and across asset classes to add alpha. You know, from our perspective, you know, volatility and and dispersion create, create opportunities. So I think we should be viewing this as a really good thing as investors. It's not something, you know, to be afraid of. And we should be leaning into these long-term opportunities that are you know, really um, popping up on a more regular and frequent basis now. Thanks, Ryan. Erica? Yeah, the, the only thing that I would uh, reiterate and, and add is um, you know, to um, really be patient during this, this market volatility. Uh, you know, as Ryan mentioned, there's, there's going to be opportunities uh, to make changes within portfolios. Um, and you know, I think right now, diversification is key. We've talked a lot um, today, as well as in our market outlook piece about a wide range of outcomes. I think importantly for those, um, uh, you know, uh, portfolios that are generating income or do have liquidity needs or distributions um, to supplement that income um, in, you know, the the short to intermediate term, uh, and uh, you know, to have a really balanced approach with uh, within equities and and consider some alternatives uh, that you know might might align uh, with your long term goals. We always like alternatives in private equity, uh, you know, in, in the morning meeting crew. Uh, Sid, maybe last word to you. Sure. Uh, I think a lot has already been said. Um, I, I do think, you know, the new paradigm, I think, is, is interesting for portfolios that, that do not have exposure to some of these inflationary uh, beneficiaries. You know, these are these are things these are tools that we think we will need more in, in the next, um, you know, coming years, you know, from a, a longer term perspective. That being said, I, I really love Kif's point about you know, quality businesses like Visa and MasterCard, where where uh, their revenues are going to reset with with rising prices. Um, you know, quality focus here. You know, great companies will not only be able to pass through price, but will also be potentially gaining share from weaker competitors in a time like this. And so, if you keep the quality bar high, 
Um, that's really important in a time like this. And then, you know, the exciting part is we haven't had much to talk about from an opportunistic investment standpoint uh, for the last few years. And, and we're starting to have a lot more. I mean, it, it could be in a year that we have a, a high yield or a distressed opportunity set. Right now, we see interesting opportunities in the biotech arena where we have a long term view uh, of, of the potential there and, and valuations have come uh, way down. Uh, and there may be one emerging right now in some really high quality uh, tech companies that have had their stock prices cut by 50, 75%. Um, so, you know, it's a really interesting uh, uh, and, and exciting, although, you know, nerve wracking time. But this is, uh, to Ryan's point, I think when active management, uh, when you're purchasing some of these securities with a long-term view, can, can, can shine for the next five years. All right. Well, that's, I think, a good place to end it. But thank you to all the panelists and thank you to everyone who participated today, uh, who dialed in. Uh, we certainly appreciate the opportunity to serve you, to share our thoughts. Uh, just want to reiterate that we do think that the next year is going to be very tough to negotiate. There is a lot of unknowns. And frankly, one of the most valuable aspects for us is hearing and seeing the Q&As uh, that came through, what's on your mind, what you're thinking about. So please know that we are going to work very hard uh, every day to serve you, to make sure that we are trying our best to help you navigate the situation. Uh, I'm sorry that we didn't get to answer some of our Q&A questions, but again, this team uh, and the rest of our firm is always here to serve you. Uh, we thank you for dialing in. The recording uh, of this will be available in the next week, so please feel free if you feel the need to listen again uh, to anything we said or to share with your friends. Uh, we certainly welcome that. Um, we hope to hear from you soon. Take care, stay well, uh, and thanks for joining us today.